0: Okay. I'm glad you're here. Um lo- lots I want to talk about and uh we just uh we just had the, the, the art site of uh the Ishbitsarebi, the um Mayh I just tell, just just someone asked me to say one thing about him, just in, in uh just just so he should be in our minds. So uh so should have you know countless aliyahs, and uh just when, when, uh, when he set himself up independently as a Rebbe, when he left the Kutska Rebbe, someone reported back to the Kutska Rebbe uh, that, he, that the Ishbetzi Rebbe had become a very big Rebbe. And the Kutska Rebbe's response was Do you think I trained him to be a shoemaker? <laughs> so, so, anyway. <laughs> I don't know that that was just one thing that came to mind but the, the truth is i want to discuss um some for me anyway these ideas are very deep uh uh just relating to re- relating to it's gonna go back to Ghanan from 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 the eating of from the the tree of knowledge the its and maybe a look at some of these uh, things in a different way, uh, and also how they affect us today, because this is something that all of us are still living with today. And hopefully we'll, we'll get a sense of, you know, just reminded anyway, of a sense of the profundity of, of this story uh, in the Torah, it, really the first, you know, like kind of major people event in the Torah, just because it's it's just such a portrait of our consciousness today, and maybe some some lessons about it and and I want to just throw in one more one more one more word of introduction and we're going to try to answer this question also on a more practical level because it's something that confounds a lot of people, especially who have grown up in say America and sort of uh, western type uh, countries, which is which is the the idea of what is the higher level of service to God? Is it to do something from your your sense of free will, from the like the the goodness of your heart to serve God, like from a voluntary volunt- voluntary basis? Because um, I'm doing this because I want to really do this, or is it a higher level to do uh, a mitzvah because you're commanded to do the mitzvah? So I think that i'm speaking for myself but i think this is true for most people i think the way that we've grown up is that to do it as sort of a free will offering is the is the highest and yet the gomorrah says very very clearly that it's a higher level to do it from a standpoint of being commanded to do it and that's very for for many people who grow up with this idea and even people who want to increase their level of observance and increase their attachment to god that it's, it's, a very, it's something that people struggle with and it seems very counterintuitive because shouldn't it come mostly from because I want to do it? By the way, there is a, a giant role for wanting to do it. But, but it, it, this is part of the dynamic of Ava, which means love, and Yira, which means awe. And those are called the two wings of the dove. And in order to fly, you both you need both of those wings. But classically speaking, Classically speaking, it begins from the standpoint of yira, which would correlate with being commanded, and then it goes. Then that arouses a higher love, and that arouses a higher yira, and that arouses a higher love, and it goes on and on and on, infinite, infinite heights in terms of the journey to God, right? But but again, just to just to um, restate the question: Why would it be? Why would it be that it's higher to be commanded? So I'll give you the simple answer from the Talmud, and then I'm going to suggest a, another answer as we as we get further in. Um, interestingly, the, the, the simple answer is because it's harder to do it if you're commanded. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you something just in terms of human nature. Anytime you're told you have to do something, you already don't want to do it. <laughs> That's just the way people work. That's the way people work. So the idea that you're commanded to do it it sort of inflames your yetahara it it inflames a spirit of resistance and then when you overcome that resistance then already you're doing a lot more than if you wanted to do it anyway mm-hmm. just in terms of a just imagine emitting energy or emitting light you have to emit a lot more energy and a lot more light to break through those those barriers and so a, a greater service is performed okay that's a simple level but but we're going to go deeper so I want to begin with uh, an event. We're not quite there in the Torah yet. Uh, it's going to be in a, in a couple more weeks, I guess. Uh, but it's an event in the Torah, which is which is the first plague that 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 comes down on the Egyptians. And so everybody knows that that God that God said to Moshe and Aaron, uh, "Lift up your staff, and the whole Nile River is going to turn into blood." It's an amazing miracle because. Not only did the Nile River turn into blood, but, but even if you had like a cup of water on your shelf in a, in a house in Egypt somewhere, that turned into blood. Amazing divine miracle. Okay, so, so Paro asked his uh, necromancers, right, that was his team of magicians, to do the same thing, and they were able to replicate it. And so it says that Paro's heart was hardened, basically. And he, he, didn't, he didn't let the Jews go. So, so how, do you, how do you understand that? How do you understand that, that event? Basically, I just want to unpack the verse, okay? Basically, it goes like this. Paro says, I can replicate the miracle of God. And since I can replicate the miracle of God, I'm equal to God. And if I'm equal to God, why should I do what God wants me to do? You know, in other words, if I don't want to do it. So do do, do you hear? Do you hear the steps of it? So. So how does that relate to us? So I've heard and I know um, Rabbi Nachman says this about uh, Megillus Esther. And, and he may say it about the entire Torah as well, that in Miguel's Esther, you have, you have Haman, you have Mordechai, you have Esther, that all of these different figures in the, in, the, in the Purim story are all inside of us. But we know that we're sort of, so to speak, made out of Torah. So, so, so there's a paro inside of us as well. The rabbis teach that as well. In other words, all, all of these all of these different elements are part of us. So there's a paro inside of us as well that says, I'm also God. So God, what do I need you for if I'm God? And I'll tell you, to go deeper in this idea, one of the most astounding things I've ever heard in my life, I heard it from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Beis Yaakov, who is the second Ishmitzer Rebbe, so the, the the Ishvotzer Rebbe that I mentioned in the beginning of this talk, this was his son. And what he said was, deep down, every single person believes that they created themselves. That's, that's an amazing, amazing thought. Deep down, every single person believes that they created themselves. Now you know that that's not a rational thought. It's not rational, because all of us understand that we have parents, that we were born from parents. And yet, deep down, and on a like like subterranean, you know, subconscious level, we have this concept that we created ourselves, that we are responsible for our own existence. You know, one of my favorite stories, and we're going to get into that idea. How do we have that idea? Where does that notion even come from? And 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 the answer is it comes it comes from eating from the tree of knowledge. That that's still a spiritual legacy that we all live with. And um we're gonna go deeper into that, but I just I just want to tell you a story. It's one of my all-time favorite stories. It happened to me. I was when I first got married, we were guests in uh someone's home in New York, and they were thank God they were a young couple, but they, you know, they had means and and they were very hospitable and, and they had, you know, we were there for Shabbos and they had this long Shabbos table and really beautifully set with like crystal and silver and all sorts of things. And, and, and a lot of guests and everyone, the, the, the host was sitting at the head of the table and he was a very quiet guy. He almost didn't say anything the whole meal, but everyone was in a good mood and I was in a good mood and I was telling stories and joking around and saying over Torahs. And so everything like that. So it was really, it was a lot of fun. And I remember at the end of the meal, I walked the guests to the door and I thanked them for coming. <laughs> and the host was standing right next to me. And after I did that, I was, I was humiliated. I was humiliated. I, I, and I, I thought to myself, here I am, a guest in this person's home, and I'm acting like the host. And then I thought this, I said, oh, You know, this next thought blew my mind to this day, which is that all of us are guests in this world. And how many of us are are acting like the hosts, like we're the hosts? This is this idea that on this deep level, all of us think that we created ourselves. And by the way, there is something to that thought. I'm going to say something less deep now, which is that we we are so to speak co-creators with God of ourselves. You know that one of the things famous uh, psukim verses in the Torah is God says, "Let us create man." Now, since human beings were not created to yet, who is God speaking to? So Rabbi Tursky famously says, "God was speaking to man. That that let us create man. You you and I will will create." Each of us individually together. The, the more pl- classic pshat is that God was talking to the angels. But, but nonetheless, nonetheless, there is a sense that we are in part responsible for our, who we are, but not for our existence. <laughs> that's like, as they say, a bridge too far. That, that's, that's already a level of madness, really. So, so where does that come from? So, I, I told you that that comes from that. That's a legacy, and you'll see in Kabbalistic texts and some Hasidic svarim, you'll see the phrase "zuhama," or maybe it's pronounced "zuhama." I don't know, but basically, it's a very sort of like startling word. It means snake poison, and it's it's talking about the the legacy of eating from. The tree of knowledge and, and the repercussions, what we, what we got, so to speak, from this snake, right? In other words, how that affected how we see the world. To this day, to this day. So So let's just have an introduction to the tree of knowledge. And by the way, the full knowledge the full name of it is the tree, of knowledge of good and bad. And why that's sort of interesting, why you have to throw in good and bad, is because according to the Rambam, before we ate from the, from the tree of knowledge, everything was absolutes. It wasn't about good and bad, it was about true and false. True and false are, it's like black and white, right? Good and bad is relative. Because what's good for you isn't necessarily good for me. And what's bad for me isn't necessarily bad for you. So all of a sudden, the tree of knowledge of good and bad all of a sudden introduces this gray area into how we act, into the world. What is the world? Bless you. You know, the existence of God, all all sorts of things now all of a sudden become this gray area. And so we're going to get into that. By the way, uh an important thing to know is that is that if if you if you were to ask a lot of people what's the first sort of like commandment in the Torah at least relating to us, most people would say or the first sort of command I I would say it's that most people would say don't eat from the tree of knowledge. But it's that's not true. And you can just look for one moment in the in the uh in the Torah and you and you'll see with your own eyes that God says, Eat from all of the trees but don't eat from from that. A very, very important very important thing to know. That's like a a cash Torah, as we say. Because because it doesn't God doesn't introduce us into his world by saying, Don't do this right? The very first thing that God says is, enjoy Partake from the entire world, but understand that there are boundaries. A very, very, very very important distinction when you're sort of being introduced to what is what is Judaism's approach to life? How do we feel about being in this world? It's like, be part of the world, enjoy, partake, explore, yes, but also understand that there are boundaries. Very, very different, very different Um. Regarding the tree of knowledge, um, by the way, we were destined to eat from the tree of knowledge, but what God wanted us to do was to eat from the tree of life first. And then the tree of knowledge would have been for either, I've heard that we would have had it on Shabbos, or certainly after having eaten from the tree of life. It's very, very important, and... And and um, the way I've sort of expressed it before is, you see, if you have knowledge before you have life experience, then you say a lot of dumb stuff and you think a lot of dumb stuff, right? Like my favorite example is a, 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 your child comes to you and says, um, you know, I want a candy bar, right? And so you give them the candy bar, and it's sort of like, oh, this candy bar is so delicious. And now the child wants to eat 30 candy bars. (laughs) And you say to the child, no, if you eat 30 candy bars, that will make you sick. And the child goes, excuse me. (laughs) I just had a candy bar. I know how good it is. So 30 candy bars is going to be 30 times as good as the candy bar I just ate. (laughs) And you go, no, 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 no. you don't understand. You're going to get sick if you eat 30 candy bars. And the child goes, you know, when you know a little bit more, come back to me. (laughs) See, this is the problem of knowledge without experience. See, like I always like to say, I I came up with a, a, a formula one time, which is that intelligence plus experience equals wisdom. Right? We don't want intelligence. Intelligence often is like, good luck. You know what I mean? Like my wife likes to say, we don't want any of the kids to marry geniuses. She says, a step below. That's what we want. We want one step below genius. That's what we want in the family. (laughs) You know, geniuses in general have a lot of problems. Because they're kind of like a little bit outside the world. And then that creates a lot of problems, actually. Like a lot of people think, oh, if only I was a genius, it would be so great to be a genius. You know what? A lot of problems come with that. Right? Step below. <laughs> you know? so, so the thing is, is that if you eat from the tree of knowledge, and by the way, that's all of us. This is all of us. I'm describing all of us right now. If you eat from the tree of knowledge, before you eat from the tree of life, then you are, as I say, too smart by half. Right? You you Your brain is kind of working against the truth. Because you don't have the entirety of the experience of life experience in front of you. So God is our parent, and God is telling us, don't do that, but, but we did do that. And one of the reasons why we did that, and it's a very interesting thing, because I don't know if I'm using this term correctly, but I think it's called cognitive dissonance, where, where something just doesn't compute. And it says that Chava looked at the tree and it says the fruit looked really good. Right? That's, that's in the tar The fruit looked really good. And so there's a little cognitive dissonance going on, a little kind of like short circuitry going on, which is that how could it be bad if it looks so good? <laughs> and by the way, this is something that everyone who's a human being who has eyes struggles with. If it's bad, it shouldn't look good. It should look bad. And if it's good, why does it look like broccoli? (laughs) It shouldn't look like broccoli. It should look like a sunset. (laughs) Like you're telling me it's good for me, but it doesn't look good. right? So this is, all this twisting around. And where did that come from, by the way? Where did it come from that that the world should exist in such a way where good things look bad and bad things look good? How how, How is it that God made a world like this? So what I'd like to suggest, and this is just me talking right now, is that you had kind of like a wrenching, like a separation of like uh, perfect harmony and the world that we live in because before we ate from the tree of knowledge, there were two prior, let's call them sins, although I'm putting those in heavy quotations, two prior, here's a better word, rebellions that nature itself waged before the whole incident of the eating from the tree of knowledge. In other words, most people think, like you say, okay, where did everything go wrong? People tell you, well, when we ate from the tree of knowledge. Okay. It's not a bad answer, not an incorrect answer, but it's deeper than that. Because we know from the Medrash, and these are verses in the Torah itself, that there were two prior rebellions before we ever ate from the tree of knowledge. One was that, that uh, it says that originally the sun and the moon were the same size. And they were both great luminaries. And it says that the moon, right, which was one of the two suns, so to speak, said, is it proper for two heads to share the same crown? Meaning, like, the two planets, imagine them two heads and the sky is a crown. Right, or the heavens are a crown, and God said, "You know, you make a good point. Make yourself small," <laughs> which was not what <laughs> I don't think the moon was thinking that was going to be the the result of that inquiry. And I heard Rabbi Beryl Wine say that every time you look up at the moon, it's a it's a Musser lesson. It's like, you know, you know, make yourself, you know, be, be humble. You know, interesting, right? But anyway, what we see here is already nature itself. And of course, these are Midrashim, right? You know, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. That's not, that's not, that's not the point. The point is, is that there's a truth in there. There's a truth that the rabbis are, are trying to tell you that the Torah is teaching us. And what you see already is there's, a again, a dislocation going on between the way something was initially created and then the way it manifests. Okay? Now you have a second rebellion going on, which is with the fruit trees. And if you... I'm not going to go into the the verse itself right now. I'm just going to sort of summarize (coughs) it. But if you look at the the verse about the creation of fruit trees, basically, God commands the trees that they should be fruit trees. Essentially, that the bark should taste the same as the fruit. And the tree says, if my bark is the same as the fruit, I'll be eaten alive. I'm not going to survive. And so the fruit tree doesn't follow the command of God, and it just makes the fruit one thing, and the tree remains as bark, not edible. Again, what I'm trying to tell you here is you see a further dislocation of the original design that God had in mind. So now I'm bringing these two examples to answer the question, or I'm trying to answer the question, how could it be that something can look good and yet be bad? Or at least bad in that moment, at least bad in that moment. Because, again, we were destined to eat from the tree of knowledge, but only after we had eaten from the tree of life. Only once we had the wisdom and the experience of what life is, then we could increase in knowledge, where knowledge wouldn't be something that put us into, so to speak, the, the, the bad genius club, right? Where, where we were too smart for our own good. Like the child saying, no, 30 candy bars are better, 30 times better than one candy bar. Right? Because that's our legacy. That's who we all are right now. So So what I'd like to suggest, and this is sort of a new thought for me, what I'd like to suggest is that the reason why God, you see, we're human beings are sort of are sort of schizophrenic. Um, basically, what I mean by that is that we, we really straddle two worlds. And that that was actually a myla. That was actually a tremendous, amazing thing about a human being, that we straddle two worlds and and to tell you what i mean by that is is that and you can look in the urhayim explains us about adam uh, that really he was like this this creature of light that basically was shuttling between heaven and earth and that heaven and earth were both open to him and and by extension all of us initially and and the example that the urhayim gives just so you can kind of wrap your brain around this, is that imagine a, a a house with an upstairs, like an attic, right? And you could walk upstairs or downstairs. You could go above or below. Like, at, 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 according to whatever your will was. That That's what I mean, that originally we were meant to straddle two worlds. But then we got, we ate, we ate from the tree of knowledge, and basically the the roof kind of got closed off to us. The upstairs kind of got closed off to us, and we became more denizens of this world. But we're more denizens of this world with a complete attachment simultaneously to the above world, which is no longer freely open to us as the way it originally was. So that's what I mean, that we're sort of schizophrenic all of us, because we sort of are built for both worlds, and yet the upper world is closed off to us. Now, of course, through Torah study, through prayer, through mitzvahs, through meditation, through singing and dancing and joy and everything like that, we do have access to those upper realms still, right? When you, when you engage in, in activities which expand your mind and expand your consciousness, you can go to those places, or at least you have entry to those places, right? But otherwise, you're kind of just trapped with like this like backstage pass and no backstage to go to, you know? So, so, so let, me, let me explain to you another way. In which, in which we're really built for both worlds, so that you'll, you'll see this point hopefully even more strongly. Every single person is a microcosm of heaven and earth, because you have your soul, your soul is a piece of heaven, and you have your body, your body is made out of earth. Remember, everyone, even, even Chava, even all women, everyone initially comes from Adam, Adam comes from the word Adama, which means earth, because God kind of formed the earth, and then he blew a, 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 a soul into him. So every single person is made out of, literally, heaven and earth. You're part heaven, part earth. So each person, remember, it says in the Talmud, if you save one person, it's like you save the whole world. Because each person is a miniature world. But again, there you see, again, I'm using this word loosely, this this type of schizophrenia. That if you're heaven and earth, but you're just on earth, (laughs) then it's kind of hard to negotiate reality. So I'm going to put it in a different phraseology now. Okay, but we're on the same subject, but I'm going to approach it from a different angle. Another way to understand what I'm talking about is by putting it in the language of the mind and the heart. We have a mind, but we also have a heart. Okay? And the the problem is is when those things become divided. Because then we're not we're not we're not acting as a coherent creation at that moment. And what happened when we ate from the tree of knowledge was we sort of supercharged our mind at the expense of our heart. That's what I mean. We sort of became detached. We came detached in a way. Now, now understand it in this way also. Because we, we have this mitzvah in the Torah, See, we have this concept of an orla. An orla is sort of like a blockage. When a, when a, when a, when a boy is born, there's a, there's a piece of skin that's cut off. That's called the orla. It's like this, this, just this, this blockage spiritually. But everyone, men, women, all together, we all have an orla on our heart. And, and God says, to, there's actually a commandment to circumcise your heart. So to to get rid of that blockage. But what I want to suggest is that the orla on your heart is actually that barrier between the mind and the heart. In other words, it's not just a blockage of the heart itself. It's that thing keeping the mind and the heart from being one together. So, Hashem obviously created us to be this way. And Hashem understood, I'd like to suggest, this is my analysis, that that Hashem understood that human beings have this two-part quality, right, which ideally is harmonized and working together. So God says, you ready for this? This is what I'm suggesting, why God says, don't eat from the tree of knowledge. Because If we eat from the tree of knowledge, God understood that this, I don't want to say weakness, because it's really what's so special about us. This special quality about us, straddling two worlds, if you eat from the tree of knowledge, it's going to separate your mind and your heart and you're going to be trapped. This is the worst thing for you. Because this is going to turn this great thing about you. It's going to do a jiu-jitsu flip on your own greatest strength. And it's going to make you a divided person. A trapped person. So it wasn't arbitrary, I'm suggesting that. Okay, I'm just going to make a test. Okay, what test should I have? Oh, we got a lot of trees here. Let's make that tree. Okay, let's make that tree, not the tree to eat from. Okay, now we got our rules. Not that. (laughs) Not that that no, 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 this is going to play into your greatest vulnerability, which is also your greatest strength, the ability to straddle worlds. So, so what was the fixing? What was the fixing? So this is why, you see, this is why we can think that we created ourselves. Because we're kind of detached in a really weird way from reality. We're always seeing part of the picture of, of, of what this world really is. As Reb Shlomo said so beautifully one time, that, that, that this world is like you're looking through a peephole. And on the other side of the people, you see someone raising a knife and you think, and there's a person below, you say, a murder's about to take place. But what is it? It's an operating theater. And then that person's life is about to be saved. So in other words, we're, we're only seeing a very small piece of reality. And this is, this is because essentially the upstairs, so to speak, got closed off to us. So we're seeing that, and, and by the way, you know, you know, we say olam haba, the world to come, right? But when you look in Sfarim, it, it uses the word olamos, which are there, tons, hundreds, thousands, billions, trillions of worlds. All different spiritual levels that are beyond this world. So really this world is, it's a tiny piece. It's a tiny, tiny piece of of, of of what's actually going on. And if we saw all of that, then we would see who we really are. So, so we're trying to answer the question, why is it better to be commanded? Why is it better to be commanded? Because the truth is, is that we're guests in this world. If we saw the enormity of what we were actually operating in, there wouldn't be like the the idea of, I don't feel like it, (laughs) or really, you know what? I think I know better. You know, I had an interesting experience this week. I, I, I had a, my sort of annual doctor's appointment checkup. And my doctor's a Jewish man and older and really like, really like if you describe sort of like the family doctor. Like, if he would be, you know, kind of like a Norman Rockwell, only Jewish type version of the, the family doctor. Wonderful, wonderful person. Not quote-unquote religious, right? And, you know, I, I because I wanted to go in before work, I... I uh you know, I, I tried to get the first appointment, so you know, my, my shirt is off and he's, you know, examining me, whatever. And he says to me, because the tefillin strap marks on my arm are yeah. still fresh. So he says Stop. he says, I, I, I see you put on tefillin. Oh. Right? And um and uh and 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 he says he he, he said, Why do you do that? Right. And you know he sort of caught me slightly off guard by the question. And just the nature of the setting and everything like that, because he really had to ask me a lot of questions about my health and, you know, you know, put one hand over one eye, touch your nose. I mean there's there was a there was an appointment taking place where there wasn't really time for a lengthy discussion or explanation. And when he said, why do you do that? Would I, here's what I heard in my ears: Why should I do that? Mm-hmm. that that's the question that I heard being asked. Not why do, why do you do that? Right? <laughs> so I thought, how can I answer the question, why should I do that? Short and sweet. And I I just said to him, I thought for a second, I said, I said, because I'm commanded to. That was it? That was my answer. (laughs) Did it make an impression? Was it satisfying? I don't know. Actually, I didn't say because I was commanded commanded to. I said because I have a commitment to. Right? Okay. So so now we're still on the same subject, but I want to tell you another story, because we, we have to go deeper now. So my father was a psychologist, Shalom, and he went to a lecture from Rabbi Manus Friedman, and he, he told this story many, many times. He loved this story. My, my dad did couples therapy and, and other types of things, and here's the story. Rabbi, and rabbi Freeman told me this told the story in his uh in, in in the talk that my father heard he said that that um, i guess he was at his office and his wife called him and said i need you to come over here right away and he said why and she hung up the phone she was very mad at him now as my father added in Maybe he himself said it in the lecture. Had, had he said, I'm coming right over, but just so I don't worry, tell me what's going on. Had he said that, that would have been fine, I'm sure. But I need you to come over right away. Why? Not cool. Not cool. Because when you're in a relationship, like a marriage should be, and I'm talking about us and God right now, as well as us and our spouses and our loved ones, when you're in a relationship like that, it can't be only if it makes sense to me. It's a complete connection. It's a complete connection which goes beyond, beyond the rational, beyond what you're just able to, you know, have make sense for you in, in in the moment. I've shared with you many times one of the this teaching. I think our generation needs this teaching maybe more than any other from the Kutzker Rebbe. He says, "I would never serve a god I understood." and my explanation of that which I think he means is because if I understood God 100% then I'm also God so what do I need God for? you see how we're going back to Paro right now? I can also do the miracles so if I'm equal to you then what do I need you for? what do I have to listen to you for? if I can also do what you're saying We have to understand that one of the conditions of God being God is that you can't understand them. Like, God isn't God, if you fully understand them. <laughs> now, I understand that that's frustrating and sometimes heartbreaking and tragic, often. But how could it be otherwise? But if we understand that God is good then we have to attach ourselves to God beyond our understanding. Otherwise, we're not in a full relationship with God. And we're not in a full relationship with ourselves. Because we transcend this world. And there's a part of ourselves that we don't even understand rationally. Why did you do that? I don't know. Why did you turn there and then you met your friend from 12 years ago? Why did you just walk into that store? Or why did you take that block? I I never take that block. And then there it was. There's a part of ourselves that we don't understand. And the gateway, the entrance to that, that's the heart and the mind together. As long as our hearts and our minds are not together, we remain divorced from ourselves. But in order to be full, we have to have access to to the attic, so to speak. We have to be able to transcend our earthly existence and go to our heavenly existence, which is part of us, because we're part heaven and earth. But how do you get to that beyond place? By transcending your own rationality. So you say, okay, great. Oh, this is a formula for disaster. So you want me to blindly follow, like, ah! How many horror stories are there like this in history? Is that what you're advocating right now? Okay, so then I would just respectfully say back to you that the Jews have been keeping the Torah mitzvahs for thousands of years in every culture, in the four corners of the world, for all time. And our record speaks for itself. The Torah's record speaks for itself in terms of civilizing and uplifting humanity, in terms of giving people quality, meaningful lives, it speaks for itself so what was the what was the what was the fixing cuz there was one period in history where we got rid of the snake poison this this consciousness of just thinking that i am the ultimate authority when did we get when did we fix this quality of being divorced from ourselves when we realized that we were one with God, that we were completely just a part of God? When did that happen? And the answer is, the, the, the rabbis are very clear on this. There aren't five answers to this. There's one answer to this, which is at Mount Sinai. It happened at Mount Sinai. where we said the words, Na which is, I will do and I will hear. And the other nations of the world said, what an impetuous people. You committed yourself to action before you even knew what it was. But we said, God is good and God runs the entire world. We know, God runs, we know there's a God. We know that he runs the entire world. We know that he's good. We know that he's in, involved in our lives. He, we know that he made us so yeah, whatever he wants, yeah, whatever it is. Like if you love someone, if you if you really love someone and someone says to you, you know, can I ask you a favor? You say yes. You don't say what? <laughs> If someone says, close your eyes and open your mouth, and it's the person who you love the most in the world, you know they're not going to stick a cockroach in your mouth. <laughs> you know it's going to be a piece of cake. <laughs> so we said, na We said, we'll do, and then we'll hear. We're committing ourselves to this because we understand that this is that this is not alien to us. This is part of us. This was the restoration of our of our, of our souls of our of our straddling both worlds instead of being divided creations. And Hashem said, "The word anulchi. This was the first word of the of that God spoke at Mount Sinai. And according to some authorities the only word that God spoke at Mount Sinai. God said I am. Right? And the Ishbitzer Rebbe, the Meishaloch who we started, with, the Ishbitzer Rebbe said that the word anochi contains the letters k which in Hebrew is a prefix which means like k ani like me, like I. So, I want to suggest that at Mount Sinai, this is just one level, that what happened was we realized that this I that I had so grown accustomed to, this divided entity, right? that that was only like me. (laughs) Now I had an alternative vision, a truer vision, of who I really am, which is transcendent, which is a part of God. And that the, the I that I was sort of like living with, that was only like me. But this was really me. (laughs) I saw a true version of myself, the real me. And now I want to suggest an answer to our question about why it's higher to be commanded. Because now I understand what the actual truth is, what my place in the hierarchy of the universe is. And that it's appropriate to be commanded. It's appropriate to be commanded. Can you imagine you're like... Like, imagine you're running like... I don't know, just a big operation. I don't know, for some reason, like, a baseball stadium, like, flashes into my head. And you've got like, I don't know, 50 different concession stands scattered around this stadium and many of them are like 10 blocks apart from each other, right? And you've got all these workers manning all these things and then walking through the stands like hawking their you know things within the stands itself, maybe that's another 50 people. And all 100 of your workers are working under one condition. They do only what they feel like. <laughs> including whether they show up to work at all. (laughs) And you're like, you want to know why the world is in such a crazy shape? (laughs) Because you've got billions of people just sort of like, if I feel like it. So, actually, let me just throw one more thing. Just to end on a very, very practical note. Which is this idea, ke'ani. Like when you think of yourself, just realize that this, this, you know, this flesh and blood kind of manifestation that you can hold and feel and right look at. It's only me It's only like you. It's not the it's not the real you. It's not the full you. And 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 to the extent that you can really internalize that. That all of us can really internalize us to the extent that we can understand that to be commanded is actually appropriate. It's appropriate. It's, 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 actually, it's, it's, it's actually right. And then from there, to do it from a standpoint of love, because of course, the one who's commanding you is the one who you love the most, right? Then, then, then you can create this harmony. You create a harmony within yourself, and that harmony radiates, to, radiates out to other people, and that harmony radiates into the actual fabric of time and space. And then all of a sudden you see like this outpouring of blessing from above, and you see peace actually taking place in the world. Because everything is starting to work in the way that it's supposed to work. And we're going to see that. We're going to see that. That's the destiny of the world. And the more we can actually work toward that and do it consciously, the faster we'll get there.